Welcome to Modern Aikidoist Podcast. My sincere thanks to listeners and those who have liked, subscribed, and commented. Your interest is noticed and deeply appreciated. Before I get into today's topic, I want to update you about this podcast in regards to the YouTube channel. Since YouTube is drastically changing its policies, I have migrated these podcasts over to a new platform, BitChute. It works much the same as YouTube with some additional features. I'm not up to speed on everything it offers at this point, but it appears to be a very viable alternative to YouTube. From what I can see, YouTube is in the process of reversing its core goal of being a platform for people to share videos. I'm not exactly sure what they're going for, but late last year they started to reverse what they were all about. Maybe they are evolving themselves into a Netflix-like platform for entertainment. The changes they are making don't make sense to me, but then again, they don't have to. The handwriting is on the wall for small content creators like me. In the meantime, I will keep the YouTube channel around until they pull the plug on it. I have all the podcasts on the BitChute channel now, and will use these to post to the social media groups that I currently do. I will monitor comments and respond to them on both sites. It appears BitChute has some interesting features around audience engagement, so I ask this favor of you to those who are watching on YouTube. Give a listen to the podcast on BitChute and subscribe to the channel. All thumbs up votes are greatly appreciated too. Whether it's a thumbs up on BitChute or a like vote on YouTube, I only take those to mean that you enjoy listening to the topics I bring up. I don't expect anyone to agree with everything I have to offer. That's extremely unlikely. Just remember that liking these podcasts tell me that you enjoy listening and would like to hear more. It doesn't cost anything and it sends a good message. Thank you, everyone. Now let's get on to today's topic. Being proficient at a martial art and being a good teacher are two very different skill sets. One can be a superb martial artist, even a world champion, but not have good teaching ability. What is the measure of a good teacher? In sport arts, a good teacher will have students who prevail. They win tournaments and championships. Often people look at successful teachers as those who have gathered a lot of students or have big schools. Such people are good business people, not necessarily good teachers. In my opinion, a good teacher is measured by the competence and success of his or her students. If we look at Osensei in this light, he had a number of students who proved themselves extremely capable martial artists. A few were even good teachers in their own right. Did Morahai pass along his skill well through being an outstanding teacher? Let's look at his teaching method based on the descriptions of those who experienced it firsthand. As I go through it, I will also be talking about teaching methods in general and how they have advanced since Osensei's time. The question of, was Osensei a good teacher, is as much about the culture and tradition of transferring skills and expertise in Japan in his era as it is about Morihai Ueshiba's personal choices in teaching method. The Japanese culture and Oriental cultures in general have some very strong traditions regarding learning, and not just in the martial arts. An important first aspect to understand about the Eastern Asian cultures is the respect for authority is so high as to be oppressive. It is more than just bad form to question a teacher or something a figure of authority says, it is a reason to reject a student entirely. This severe view on authority is outlined in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. Gladwell explains that in the 80s, Korean Airlines had a horrible safety record. It had more airplane crashes by far than any other airline. The airline safety culture being what it is, thorough investigations were done to find the exact source of each of these crashes. I'll only summarize the full story, but we'll hit most of the relevant aspects. For a commercial airliner, or usually any aircraft, to crash, 
many things need to go wrong. It's not usually one error or equipment failure, but a series of failures, problems, and errors in concert which result in catastrophic failure. This is partly due to a long history of designing and building aircraft safer than the old-time aircraft, as well as how much better pilots, air crews, and maintenance personnel are trained. A great deal of attention is paid to safety, and the technology and methods have come a long way since the early decades of aviation. Anyway, the investigations all concluded that there was a small error at play which started a chain of events which were easily avoidable. So why did the planes crash? In each case, some member of the crew picked up the indicator signal that something was wrong. Here's where the heavy authoritarian culture caused a major problem. In every case, crew members either thought the captain already knew of the problem, and therefore they shouldn't mention it, which might indicate that they are challenging his authority or judgment, or the crew members did mention the problem but were careful to state the problem in such casual terms which did not convey the seriousness of the situation. They did this out of the fear that pointing out a problem might make the captain look bad for not having known about it already. If the captain was making an error in judgment, which all humans do, no crew member would speak up and say that the captain may be in error. This is behavior which is not acceptable in Eastern Oriental cultures. In a situation where minutes count, there is no time to be gentle or patient about impending emergencies. Once this cultural issue was identified, Korean airlines took on adopting the universal leadership model which is used in aviation throughout the world. In a concerted effort, they retrained all of their flight crews to remove this cultural norm. Trainers were brought in from the United States and taught their crews that if something is wrong, whether it is equipment, flight conditions, or judgment, that it must be voiced immediately. Any relevant and useful information must be shared immediately, even if it is a concern about the judgment of the captain. Korean Airlines was able to turn their safety record around from being the lowest rated airline to among the highest. When we look at how O-sensei taught, by all accounts, he said virtually nothing about how technique is performed. He would demonstrate a technique a few times in silence, then gesture for students to emulate him. Sometimes his demonstrations were not even showing the same technique. He would do a few different ones and then say, practice. If a student didn't pick up on what was shown, tough. He would have to figure it out for himself. Another aspect of the authority-based culture is you do not speak during class. Certainly, you would never presume to assist another student who is struggling, as this would be usurping the authority of the instructor who is teaching the class. So what is the result? Students practice doing technique incorrectly and do not identify what they are doing wrong. If they do learn, it's through trial and error as they blindly stumble along their path of experimentation. It was very common for Japanese to learn professions like this too. If you wanted to learn to be, say, a sushi chef, you were given a humble job as a dishwasher and you watched how the next worker up in the kitchen did their job for a few years. In this case, it might be the person who prepares rice. After watching it done day after day for a few years, you might be moved up to preparing rice. From there, you can watch how a chef selects fish and preps it. You could watch that for a few years before you're moved up to that position. After a few decades of moving up, all the while showing competence and attention to quality, you may end up as a sushi chef. Apprenticeship is certainly a valid way to learn, but I question whether doing so silently is the most efficient way to transfer knowledge and skills. I believe there are more effective ways to do it. Now we look at martial arts instruction. How many times have we heard that Aikido takes decades to learn? It's a common statement made by Aikido instructors and practitioners. 
I believe this statement is not only false, it also turns prospective students off. I also believe that this statement comes across as arrogant as it gives the impression that only extremely dedicated people can get any benefit from Aikido training. That is clearly not true. Anyone can enjoy Aikido and become competent with it without having to take it on with the same level of dedication as they would their profession. The cultural difference between the Japanese and the Americans was a shock to Koichi Tohei, who was the first to bring Aikido to the United States. He was taken aback when a student asked him a question about a technique. The story I heard was at first Tohei had no response as he had never had a student be so bold as to question him, nor had he seen any instructor be questioned either, so he was at a loss for an immediate response. Tohei reflected on this major difference. After working with American students for a while, he arrived at this observation. I'm going to paraphrase from what I was told of his perspective. It's been so long since I heard this that I will probably add a bit to Tohei's words, so forgive me for that. He said essentially that the Japanese student and the American student each have their strengths and weaknesses. The Japanese student will diligently practice doing thousands of repetitions in an attempt to get a technique right. The problem is, is that he may be doing it wrong and reinforcing poor technique. In the end, he will be practicing poorly because he doesn't understand exactly what he should and should not be doing. The American student seeks to understand what he should be doing and is brave enough to ask. Doing this gives a student a better foundation of understanding moving forward, so he has a better chance of making his repetitions better and therefore more productive. The problem with the American student is that once he understands the concepts, he tends to get lazy about doing the repetitions. The perfect student is a combination of these two, someone who seeks to understand and asks clarification with what is missing, and the discipline to practice diligently until his movements are correct and are second nature. Let's take a look at Tohei's perspective from the standpoint of an instructor. Providing your students clarity on fundamentals and principles is important. If you describe something clearly, you can save yourself a lot of questions and a lot of confusion. If you allow students to assist each other, you save them struggling and getting frustrated or wasting time doing a lot of bad repetitions. There is a slogan I felt important enough to paint on the wall of my dojo. Practice makes permanent. However you practice is how you perform. If you practice bad technique, you will perform bad technique. Under stress, it gets even worse. The adage practice makes perfect is inaccurate. Perfect practice makes perfect. What good teacher could put the responsibility of perfect practice on their student after offering insufficient guidance? Osensei did have his students do a lot of repetitions, but because that was just how teaching was done in Japan at that time. Such methods of teaching are inefficient and outdated, and I think that is more than merely my opinion. It's a fact. This model of teaching has been abandoned in favor of more effective and positive methods, and that's a good thing. Osensei was, by all accounts, an extremely talented martial artist, but I think he was a poor teacher. Earlier I mentioned that one measure of a teacher was the quality of his students. Keep in mind that Osensei had many students who came to him as highly ranked martial artists already. Working with highly skilled and driven athletes and adding a bit to their abilities is an easy way to look good, but I don't think paints an accurate picture of him as an instructor. It is far more likely that those students who became instructors themselves contributed far more to students' understanding by introducing more modern teaching methods. In fact, I think it is their efforts that did more to spread Aikido and make it popular than Osensei's efforts. It is said that Osensei hated Tohei for his teaching style. 
I don't know if that is because what Tohei was teaching or the fact that he was not using the silent method that Osensei did. I say these things with no disrespect to Osensei, but merely to show what is really there rather than what I wish to see. We have Osensei to thank for a great many things in regards to Aikido, but I don't think teaching method was one of them. I also don't blame him or fault him for it. It was the standard of his culture. We should be thankful for Tohei's influence and the influence of other primary students who contributed more efficient teaching methods. Without their contributions, Aikido would not have grown to be as popular or accessible as it is today. What do you think? Please share your ideas in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube or on BitChute, or go to the Facebook group Aikido the Marshall Side and post a comment. The Spirit Aikido online program is now live. Subscribers get access to video training and mentoring to techniques and training methods I've adopted from other martial arts to make my Aikido more practical. There is a link in the description section. I invite you to check it out. I always enjoy hearing from listeners of the show, whether through comments or questions. Thank you all for sharing your interest. Enjoy your training.